Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Charles Gibbs first found his sea legs at 15. He spent two years as a midshipman on a gunboat under the command of his father, a captain in the US Navy. But naval discipline was not for him, and Gibbs soon fell into a life of pirating. During a decade of villainy on the high seas, he claimed to have murdered over 400 people. But in 1830, his pirating days came to a swift end when he was arrested, taken to New York, and executed on Gibbet Island. A gibbet was the post that criminals' bodies were hung from after execution as a warning to others, and New Yorkers had nicknamed the island after the gruesome structure. But it had once had a different name, one it reverted to after the hanging stopped in 1839, Ellis Island. Half a century later, the first migrants landed on the island after travelling across the Atlantic in search of the American dream. So far this year, over 2 million people following that same dream have entered further south at the Mexican border. With 18 days to go until the midterm elections, I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, will immigration lose Democrats' votes in the midterms? At the southern border, the diggers are back. Joe Biden abruptly halted construction of the wall between America and Mexico on his first day in office. But in the face of record numbers of migrants arriving there, he's quietly reversed course, filling in some gaps left by the Trump administration. 2,000 miles north, New York's mayor, Eric Adams, has declared a state of emergency. 20,000 migrants have arrived in the city, bussed there after crossing from Mexico. The problem at the border is now spreading throughout the country. Can it ever be solved? With me this week to talk through immigration, the southern border and the midterms are Charlotte Howard and Idris Kaloon. Charlotte, you're back. How was your break? My break was fine. I returned to see... Britain's democracy in disarray. There's some there's some kind of schadenfreude in seeing another democracy be completely dysfunctional. And I would say that the level of leadership in Britain is extraordinary, but maybe it's just ordinary. I don't know. What do you guys think? Idris, how does it look to you from DC? Uh, I don't know, John. It's your country. What's going wrong? It is my country. And I feel like our role is often to make you guys feel better about the state of American democracy. I felt this very strongly in 2016, when Donald Trump became president and Britain brexited. And I felt it again when Boris Johnson was going through his various travails. Idris, apart from enjoying the spectacle of British politics this week, what's been going on in Washington? What have you been up to? 
Um, I have actually been traveling in Pennsylvania. I went to see Josh Shapiro, who's the Democrat who's running for governor at an event in Philadelphia. Tomorrow, I'm planning to try to follow around Doug Mastriano, who's the Republican who's running for governor around the state. He is famously unfriendly to the media, though, so unclear how exactly that's going to go. But that's what my week has been consumed with, in addition to watching the spectacle of uh, Liz Truss. And there's so many good puns, right? Like, Trussfall was a good one. I don't know if anyone's used that yet. There have also been a lot of lettuce-related jokes here after The Economist in one of our editorials uh, speculated that she might not survive for longer than the shelf life of an iceberg lettuce. Which is true. She did not. Turns out the lettuce won that one. Okay. While you were in Pennsylvania, Idris, did anyone mention immigration and what's going on at the border at the moment to you? Did that come up at all? You know, it didn't, but that might have been because I was, uh, at least so far, had had been following a Democrat around. But, um, you know, you see immigration crop up as a big issue all across the states, including those that aren't on the southern border. Like, for example, I've heard that in Wisconsin, it's a big part of why Ron Johnson is running, um, even though the border that they share is with Canada, not Mexico. So, you know, you see it all over the place. You've got to watch those canoes. Okay, we're going to start at the border at the bottom. We're going to start at the southern border. Earlier this week, I spoke with our colleague Alexandra Suich-Bass, who covers the border, among other things, for The Economist, and she's based in Texas. Alexandra, we've talked about the southern border and about immigration and about the politics of both of those things on the podcast before. What's different this time around? There are a few things that make the situation at the border feel quite different than it did in the past when we've discussed it. The first is the high number of encounters we're seeing at the border with Border Patrol officials encountering migrants um, in in extremely high numbers. And in speaking with a border patrol expert, he suggested to me that the numbers we're seeing only represent probably less than 20% of the people who are trying to cross the border because many do so undetected and are never apprehended. Republicans, of course, have used the border as a wedge issue in elections before, but I'd, I'd say this is a little bit like the boy who cried wolf. Be, you know, Republicans were talking about the border, talking about the border, talking about the border, and then it's actually become a big issue as, as we're seeing it play out, um, and that's represented in the numbers. The other thing that I think is really noteworthy that's true today that wasn't as true a few years ago is the sheer diversity of nationalities we're seeing show up at the border. So earlier this year, we saw a lot of Ukrainians, Recently, we've been seeing a lot of Venezuelans and Cubans and Nicaraguans. And as that diversity has increased, the border has become a much harder issue for the Biden administration to solve. Uh, So those are the two things that I'd point to. And that diversity issue is important because if you're the Biden administration, one of the things you're tasked with is deporting people who are undocumented and are in the US. And if those people come from Venezuela, which is essentially collapsing and Cuba, which is a dictatorship, sending them back is much harder, right? Can I just clarify one thing? Because I think some people who haven't spent time on the southern border or reporting from the southern border as you have, might have an idea in their head that what's going on here is that people are somehow undercover, crossing the border at night, going through the desert, arriving undetected, and then at some later date being arrested by Customs and Border Patrol um, and then taken to detention centres. But that's not what's happening, right? By and large. 
So a lot of people do try to pass undetected across the border. Often those are people carrying illegal substances and the like. But we're seeing a huge number of people show up at the border and try to find Border Patrol officials to turn themselves in. And most of these people are are claiming asylum, which is they are legally allowed to do. They are fleeing uh, war, poverty, the threat of violence, uh, and a whole number of factors. Um, and that's what's made the situation very difficult. The current immigration system in America is not designed to see and process this many asylum seekers. And then, of course, an additional complexity is the uh, the family units and young children we're seeing show up at the border, which complicate it even more. But that's right. I think illegal immigration is used as a catch-all for and is a really imprecise and unhelpful term because in fact asylum is legal and people are are showing up in very large numbers trying to uh, to claim asylum and that is distinct from the people who are trying to sneak in undetected across the border i think from reading your reporting on this issue democrats nationally don't realize perhaps because they watch too much partisan media quite how bad this issue is for them, including for Democrats who are running in border states who seem to be stuck with a um, administration's policy that they're trying to run away from and can't really defend. Yeah, I think it's a really losing position for Democrats right now. And Republicans are playing playing this up. And Democrats basically want to avoid talking about immigration and the border right now. Um, the place where it's really factoring in to midterm races is in border states and in border districts. And so recently, the Biden administration has started authorizing sections of the wall to be rebuilt. The Biden administration has been mum on it. We see Mark Kelly, the Democratic candidate for the U.S. and a seat in Arizona, talking about it actually quite loudly, saying he's responsible for helping convince the Biden administration for filling in barrier gaps in Arizona. Uh, the It's also a really big issue in Texas. And I spoke with the Congressman Henry Cuellar, who's running for re-election there, who really thinks that the Biden administration and Democrats need to talk tougher on the border, that it's uh, really hurt Democrats in border areas. And so I think that it's factoring hugely into the midterms. You only have to watch what's happening in Arizona or Texas to understand what a charged issue this is. Um, But it is a really tricky situation for Democrats because there's not very much that they could point to that the Biden administration has done since assuming office on immigration. Um, And I think they really worry about alienating voters if they talk too much about it. So with the exception of some candidates who are talking tough in order to woo voters on the border, we're seeing a lot of Democrats just avoid the issue entirely. Charlotte, one point Alexandra made to me when we were talking is that the southern border is a classic split-screen issue in America. If you watch Fox News, you will see endless segments about the border and how it's being overrun and there's chaos and the Biden administration is AWOL. If you watch MSNBC, you won't see that. And actually, I think there's a bit of an assumption in democratic activist circles that focusing too much on the border or talking about problems there is sort of tinged with racism or, or at least with xenophobia. So this seems like a good subject for us to try and lay out 
what's actually going on? Can you run us through what the numbers show? Yes, I can. I was looking at this this morning in preparation for the podcast, and I was struck by just how enormous the surge has been in the number of encounters at the southern border. So this year exceeding 2 million. And as Alexandra says, that's just a fraction of those actually crossing the border. And if you think back to 2016, when Donald Trump was elected, really warning about the extreme danger of people crossing the border, the numbers then were less than 500,000. So in the time since then, the, the yearly numbers have more than quadrupled. And that's, that's pretty striking. And I think the reason why you see that contrast that you described in what Republican-leaning television shows might cover and what Democratic-leaning television shows might cover is that this is a problem that even when it wasn't a really big problem was a good idea for Republicans to focus on politically. And for Democrats, now that it actually has become a bigger problem than it was before, it's really a challenge because it's a phenomenon to which they have no good solution, at least no politically practical solution. And so it's not surprising to me that they're trying to uh, diminish it. And I think the response that you see from Democratic activists in terms of thinking about immigration or talk about immigration is often being tinged with racism. The reason why they say that is because it is, and it has been historically, but it now is a big enough issue, a big enough problem that it does need to be reckoned with. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there certainly has been uh, discussions of this issue which have been tinged with racism. And I think you saw that with Donald Trump saying quite famously that uh, he thought that Mexicans were rapists, that he wanted to ban all Muslims point blank from entering the country. But I do think that the minimizing of concern that Democrats tend to do only makes them seem out of touch. The New York Times actually did a, a long story pointing out that since the Biden administration has come to power, they've released a million asylum seekers into the country awaiting court dates, which we know the court system is backlogged. We don't know how many years it's going to take to process all those claims. And I don't think that uh, concern about that makes someone a, a racist. I think that Democrats actually not that long ago used to think that it was a fair trade to trade border security with something like a pathway to citizenship. That was something that the Trump administration actually discussed with Nancy Pelosi um, and Chuck Schumer before the right wing got to him and he scuppered that deal. But I think that Democrats are only belatedly now getting back to a point where they do say things that to most of the country sound incredibly sane and normal, like a country needs borders. You see that in Mark Kelly. You see that also in Raphael Warnock, who's trying to run a very moderate campaign in Georgia. The other point is that unlike, you know, there, there's often a fear that conservatives have that, um, you know, for example, with welfare policy, that people are incredibly attuned to it and will change their behavior very swiftly response to policy change, maybe making welfare more generous, for example. But I think that that is actually true with migration flows. And it is a real a real problem for Democrats. And I think their strategy so far is to try to ignore it and not talk about it and hope that it goes away. But it's not going to. Okay, we'll go back in time in a minute to hear about a surprisingly pro-immigration president. But first, an announcement. Economist subscribers can tune in to a live Q&A, a virtual event with the Checks and Balance team next Thursday, October the 27th at 9pm UK time or 4pm on the East Coast. This will feature both Charlotte and Idris. I won't be around. Charlotte and Idris, what can subscribers look forward to? Yeah, so next week it will be me, Idris, John Fasman, and Elliot Morris, who's our resident data guru. And we'll talk about all kinds of things related to the midterms. 
including some of the big races, their implications. Idris, what are you looking forward to chatting about? Well, we will talk at you about the races that are coming up, all of the exciting Senate seats, uh, governor seats, uh, what's at stake for American democracy. But more importantly, it'll be a chance for us to hear from you and hear your questions for us, um, which we are excited to answer. Yeah, it's going to be great. So that is Thursday, October 27th at 9pm UK time or 4pm on the East Coast. This is an event for Economist subscribers and you can find a link to it in the show notes. If you're not a subscriber yet, then please do sign up. You'll find a link to subscribe to The Economist in the show notes as well. The future president addressed the crowd from a makeshift stage in a park on the water's edge. Behind him, on her island home in the waters of New York Bay, the Statue of Liberty stood tall and proud in the late summer sun. The future president opened his speech with a tribute to the millions of immigrants who had passed under the gaze of Lady Liberty as they set foot for the first time in America. These families came here to work. They came to build. The future president was a Republican. Others came to America in different ways from other lands under different and often harrowing conditions. But this place symbolizes what they all managed to build no matter where they came from, or how they came, or how much they suffered. It was September 1980, Labor Day, and Ronald Reagan was campaigning in New Jersey, a stone's throw from Ellis Island. We all came from different lands, but we share the same values, the same dream. It was an appropriate setting. Reagan often struck a benevolent tone on immigration. In the first year of his presidency, he promised to continue America's tradition as a land that welcomes peoples from other countries and acknowledged that both the United States and Mexico have historically benefited from Mexicans obtaining employment in the United States. This bill, the... Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 that I'll sign in a few minutes is the most comprehensive reform of our immigration laws since 1952. The big immigration reform of the Reagan presidency was the 1986 Immigration Relief and Control Act. The bipartisan bill was in two parts. An amnesty meant that undocumented migrants who'd been in America for four or more years were eligible for legal status. And then there would be tougher enforcement to stop businesses hiring unauthorized workers and more security on the border. Establishing a path to citizenship for those already in America would be balanced by measures discouraging others from coming. Future generations of Americans will be thankful for our efforts to humanely regain control of our borders and thereby preserve the value of one of the most sacred possessions of our people, American citizenship. The IRCA is now generally seen as a failure. The carrot part worked. 2.7 million immigrants were granted legal status. And it wasn't President Reagan's only pro-immigration action. He extended the amnesty to children and signed a bill prohibiting hospitals from denying urgent care to immigrants. But the stick part did not work. Under pressure from the business lobby, the enforcement part was watered down so much by the time President Reagan came to sign it 
that it didn't stop employers hiring illegal or undocumented migrants. And there wasn't enough money put towards border security for it to be effective. In 1986, there were thought to be 5 million unauthorized immigrants in America. Now the number is around 10 million. We lead the world because, unique among nations, we draw our people, our strength, from every country and every corner of the world. If we ever close the door to new Americans, our leadership in the world would soon be lost. These words, from Reagan's final year in office, now sound like a warning to his Republican heirs. It's hard to believe they were spoken by a president from the same party as the one who launched his presidential campaign by promising to build a wall that would keep migrants out. Idris, I find this issue of immigration a really interesting one, partly because of the history here. I mean, it's one of those issues where the parties have basically swapped political or policy positions over the last 30 odd years. You go back to the Reagan Republican Party, the George H.W. Bush Republican Party. And at that time, the party was very pro-business and tended to line up its policy positions with what big business wanted. And big business wanted lots of unskilled or relatively inexpensive labor at the time. And so the party was pro-migration. Meanwhile, in the Democratic Party, organized labor was much more important than it is today. And the labor unions saw low-skilled, low-wage workers as a threat to the wages of their own blue-collar members. They worried about their wages being undercut. And so Democrats tended to be very sceptical of immigration, hostile to immigration. And what we've seen over the past kind of 30-odd years is as white working-class voters in particular have moved away from Democrats and towards the Republican Party, the policy position on immigration has switched. Yeah, I think that's right. Interestingly, you can see that shift in the fossilized political thought of Bernie Sanders, where I vividly recall he gave an interview, I think it was to Vox, where they asked him about borders, essentially. And he said that, you know, the idea of unlimited migration was a Koch brother plot to basically devalue the uh, cost of labor. And that he, unlike other progressives, actually wasn't quite as favorable towards high levels of, of immigration. I think that what you've seen now is that the Democratic Party, which is increasingly dominated by college-educated white liberals, is so fearful of being tarnished as racist, and is also, I think, partially so warped by the polarized environment that we're in, that the concept of border security seems like one that they don't want to discuss pivot is always to, well, you know, people are coming from difficult circumstances, we should be doing the best that we can, which is obviously true. But I think that it has it has made what was previously a fairly normal concept, somewhat anathema to them. And then I think on the Republican side, we've seen a sort of a very hostile takeover of straightforward xenophobia, uh, straightforward dislike for people who uh, don't share a sort of white Christian background. And, you know, you see that that is powering the sort of know-nothing and nativism that's within the party itself. So I think that we see now that it's diverged. And I think in the last few years has gotten basically to the point where there is, you know, almost no, no common ground left. I think that is true. And I'd point out that part of the reason why this is a hard issue for many Democratic voters and for then Democratic administrations to respond to is because of practices that I would call blatantly inhumane, whether it's separating very young children from their parents at the border and keeping them in 
unsanitary detention facilities or incidents where you see Border Patrol agents chasing human beings on horseback. So I think that, you know, there's a reason why this is an emotional issue. I think that when you look at the actual policies of Democratic administrations, I don't really see what Biden is doing as a bleeding heart immigration policy. They just in the past week had a series of policies that suggest that they're trying to get the problem in hand, albeit really imperfectly. But those include sending more Venezuelans to Mexico to wait for asylum, which is something that immigration activists don't like. They include requiring Venezuelans to have a financial sponsor within the U.S. if they want to come and claim asylum. That's similar to the policy in place for Ukrainians. So I guess my point is that when you look at the actual policies of democratic administrations, they're not yet abolishing ICE. They're not saying anyone can come in. I don't think that the policy that they have is effective, but it is pragmatic to the extent that they can be. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to hear how the problems at the southern border have spread all the way up to New York. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Recently, Republican governors in southern states like Greg Abbott in Texas and Ron DeSantis in Florida have hit upon a way to reduce the number of asylum seekers on their patches while scoring political points with their base. Bust them north. Around 20,000 migrants have arrived in New York, where the city's mayor, Eric Adams, has declared a state of emergency. Our very own John Fasman has been to meet some of them. The men's intake shelter where single men new to the city have their needs assessed and, they hope, get assigned a bed, is at the corner of 30th Street and 1st Avenue in Manhattan. On a chilly Tuesday morning, there was a steady stream of Venezuelans coming and going. Most had crossed the border to claim asylum in Texas just a few days earlier. They were fleeing economic collapse in their country. After processing and detention, many have been given a choice. A bus to Chicago to New York. Carlos Linares. Venezuela. Most of the men were pretty cagey about talking to a reporter, and even those that were happy to talk didn't have long. They had to spend their day dealing with bureaucratic tasks, finding a bed, getting an ID card, starting the training they need to work in construction. Unfortunately, I speak pretty basic Spanish, so I brought an interpreter with me. Carlos walked from Venezuela to the southern border. He told me and Vanessa, my interpreter, that the worst part of his journey was in Mexico. Mexico. Mexico was worse than the jungle. There are many very evil people. I, I don't know how else to describe it, but basically they try to get your money. And if they don't, they basically uh, give you up to the cartels, to the uh, drug cartels. 
And what do you hope to do here in the U.S.? What would you like to do for work or for study? Here, what I'm looking for is uh, my documents. I want to get my IDs, my permits, so I can work either in construction or as a waiter. So that's what I'm looking for, a stable job where I can uh, earn some money and be able to send money to my family. Carlos crossed into Texas and spent eight hours in a detention center before being put on the bus to New York. Another man there, Juan David, had been in the Venezuelan army. I was a former lieutenant in Venezuela. Um, I had to stay at the army for five years. I didn't want to, so I basically left. Um, they were forcing us to do things that I wasn't, I didn't agree with, and I wasn't, you know, uh, willing to do. Even before the buses started arriving, New York is an immigration hub. Immigrants make up 40% of its population. But the people being bussed up from the border are less likely than previous arrivals to have connections in the city, to give them a place to stay or help them get on their feet. They, they say that they don't want it to be a burden, you know, for a government and for anybody. that they. Which is where people like Mariana Duenas come in. She is a Venezuelan immigrant herself, and she works for Catholic Charities. Working with the mayor's office, her organization helps new migrants navigate the city. Yeah, we provide, you know, immigration services, information, also the uh, um, education department, uh, people from NYC ID. Uh, also, we have uh, doctors that, you know, can, you know, attend. Uh, yeah, you know, Mariana told me that many of the migrants are happy to come to New York. It has a right to shelter law which means that anyone without a roof over their head is entitled to one. But the steady influx of migrants is putting pressure on resources. At the current pace, there could soon be 100,000 people seeking shelter. Mayor Eric Adams wants help from the federal government and legislation so that migrants can work legally. You know, we have to see the human being, okay? But that will take time, if it happens at all. Meanwhile, Mariana is more concerned with the personal than the political. It's the moment to, you know, embrace a human being who is in front of you, who, you know, is suffering a lot. The, the main motivation for them is, you know, to work, to be productive. That's it. So John worked on that story with our colleague Rosemary Ward, who writes about New York for The Economist. She wrote a piece about this recently in The Economist. If you want to find that, then the headline is 20,000 asylum seekers are putting New York values to the test. So if you want to read that, do Google it and find it. Charlotte, New York is a big place, but nevertheless, 20,000 is a lot of people. What have you made of the city's response so far? Well, I think that Rosemary's title is apt because New York is a place that prides itself, obviously, as historically being the destination point for immigrants for hundreds of years. And there's a reason for that, which is that it it continues to be uh, the city with more immigrants than any other. And it has um, both that, that cultural history of being welcoming to immigrants, but then also it has a legal obligation to offer shelter to anyone. So both uh, in terms of the city's character, but then also by law, 
it's required to be welcoming. This year, it also happened to pass uh, a law that extends welfare to people who aren't citizens. So it has a structure to be welcoming of immigrants. The problem is it doesn't actually have the infrastructure to do so, um, particularly in the shelter system. So Rosemary reports there are more than 60,000 people who are now in the shelter system, and then you have five to six buses arriving each day. And it's a real, real challenge, as John reported as well, to find places to put them that are safe. So it's really not easy to live up to uh, what New York aspires to be in terms of a welcoming destination for immigrants. One thing that strikes me is that, you know, the root of this movement was, I think, a pretty callous decision by Greg Abbott to basically use people as props um, to make a sort of political point. And I think especially in the case of Ron DeSantis, who flew Venezuelan uh, asylum seekers, not even from his own state, but from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, I think purely as a way of getting himself onto Fox News. These are, I I think, the definition of political stunts. And yet they seem to have kind of worked as intended, which is uh, somewhat of a remarkable thing. I mean, Mayor Adams is clearing state of emergency um, in D.C., where also many uh, uh, asylum seekers have been bussed. The mayor here uh, has been issuing similarly concerned notes. And I think the point that is made by mayors in in border towns and governors of border states is that um, this sort of feeling is one that is, is experienced every single day. You know, I don't like that this is the way in which that point is being rendered, because I think it just doesn't treat human beings as human beings. I think it treats them as as sort of political pawns. But yet, I wonder whether or not it will focus Democrats on a sort of more sustainable solution than the one that we have now. Yes, just to pause on that for a moment. I mean, if you listen to what Republicans are saying, you know, governors like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, their logic is that democratic big cities have been reluctant, in many cases, to enforce immigration law. And they haven't had to pay the costs of an immigration policy that's pretty welcoming to migrants. That cost is borne by people in the border states. And so why not? If they're so keen on immigrants, we're going to send them lots of migrants. I think that's callous. And I also think it's hypocritical because if the argument among people like Abbott and DeSantis is that the Democratic administration in D.C. is being too welcoming to migrants, or rather not unfriendly enough, and that's exercising a pull factor. Well, you know what really would encourage more people to cross the border is giving them a free bus ride to New York. So I don't think it stacks up as far as that goes. But I do think the argument they're making is not a completely crazy one. Charlotte, what do you make of it? There's nowhere in the United States that's really adequately prepared for this. And so I think the question then is, is is what comes next? And I was interested that both Mayor Adams in New York and the governor, Kathy Hochul, responded quite favorably to the change in policy that was recently announced by the Biden administration to require Venezuelans coming to have a sponsor, to have a financial sponsor, i.e. they're trying to kind of rationalize this flow and stem the tide. They, 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 they want to see the volumes reduced, right? And so it's interesting that you have even the most lefty of the left represented by New York politicians taking that approach as well. We heard in John's reporting, right? The people just want to come here to work and they want to make a living and they want to send money back to their families, which is all, I think, a, a very valid 
instinct to have, right? Uh, but you know, the the process by which one seeks asylum is for a different claim. It's not it's not the sort of economic hardship claim. It's one of fear of persecution, fear of torture. That's different from I think what what we 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 see, right? So to come from Venezuela to America, you have to cross through Colombia, Panama, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Mexico, um, you know, and, and arrive in, in in America. And I think that. You know, I think it's pretty straightforward that the reason that, that America is the destination is because of its economic vibrancy, which, again, I completely understand, but I, I think is perhaps not the intended use of the asylum system. I think in some ways in this debate, people can talk past each other for the reason that you just put your finger on, Idris, which is that there are many people who come to the United States both because of its economic vibrancy, but I'd also point out because of generally its basic rule of law, a democracy that's at least relatively functional compared with many of the countries from which these these people are leaving. But I think that your criticism that the asylum system is slightly being misused points to a, a broader disconnect in the debate, which is basically that there's a fundamental disagreement about whether immigration is a good thing and continues to be a good thing for America and that we should let people in, not just because they're fleeing a horrible uh, situation in their home country, but rather because we think that it helps make America more vibrant, that the economic vibrancy that these people are attracted to is something that is enhanced by their presence. And actually, if you look not just at southern border encounters, which continue to rise, but rather at net international migration to the United States, the latter number has declined precipitously in recent years. And that's a huge problem for American business that has been identified again and again by the likes of the Chamber of Commerce, which is hardly a progressive lefty organization, that there's a big problem for America as total immigration numbers decline. So that includes all different kinds of immigrants, obviously, not just those who are fleeing Central and South America. But I think it is nevertheless worth keeping in mind that, yes, the asylum system isn't necessarily set up to deal with all of these people, but more broadly, a lack of an immigration policy that reflects, in my view, the reality that immigration on net is a good thing for America. That's where this debate becomes so frustrating to me. As a second generation immigrant, I'm very in favor of immigration. But I think our debate is whether or not the legal system is set up to uh, to accommodate what is a very good thing, which is immigration, or whether or not the the system allows for a large number of unauthorized migration, whether or not that's a problem. And I think it used to be relatively uncontroversial to say that large amounts of unauthorized immigration um, are not good for a country. Um, and I think that now we see that that's, that's, for some reason, a hard statement for, for people to sign up for. The dream solution here, I think, is that the unauthorized part of the migration is better regulated. And that buys the political support and political will for America to let in a lot more migrants through the legal channels. Unfortunately, I don't know whether that's available, both because fixing the asylum system is so incredibly hard. But also, I feel like even if you did that, Idris, do you think Republicans and Democrats would then come together and agree that it's really good for America to increase the number of migrants in a way that I think we all agree would, would be good for the country? I mean, that just seems unlikely to me, unfortunately. Yeah, I think it's never a, an unsafe bet to say that they won't agree on things. But I mean, if you look at the rhetoric up until recently, it has been among Republicans that they want a points-based system 
akin to what a lot of Anglophile countries have, and that they are very much in favor of high-skill migration because that is beneficial to the country. And so, you know, you can imagine something like that coming through. I think lately, the Republican Party has taken a xenophobic turn in which they oppose all forms of immigration, legal and illegal. So, you know, I worry about that turn, meaning that there wouldn't be scope for agreement. But I think that in the past, there was scope for for agreement on the basic idea that high-skilled immigration was on net a good thing, and that illegal migration or uncontrolled migration uh, was not a good thing and ought to be curtailed. I mean, one of the paradoxes here is that the polling tells us, and Elliot has been telling us, that the economy is top of mind in the midterm elections. But the stronger the American economy is, the greater the pull it exerts on migrants from less fortunate, poorer countries. And so you have this strange system where the more successful America's economy is, the greater the undocumented or illegal migration problem becomes, and the harder it is to fix the immigration system. So it feels like we've been stuck in a loop on this one for for some time. It would be very nice to break it, but I suspect it's not going to happen anytime soon. Okay, it's quiz time. In 1957, The Economist wrote about a full-scale replica of the Mayflower, which was built and paid for by British citizens and sailed to Plymouth, Massachusetts. In time, the vessel's popularity with sightseers may equal that of the Statue of Liberty, we wrote. The Mayflower, too, is still there. But in the public imagination, at least, Lady Liberty holds firm. So we were wrong on that one. Question one. The Statue of Liberty holds a torch in her right hand. What does she hold in her left and what's written on it? Isn't it a scroll? It's no, it's 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 two tablets. But I actually don't know what's written on the tablets. Poem, maybe. This is really, you know, I'm embarrassed for you, Adris. Is it? I, I, it's like. Uh... I can't believe you don't know this. I mean, I know I, I can believe that I don't know this, but I am very shocked that you uh, don't know this. What's the something Lazarus? I don't know. The the give me your tired and sick. It's something in Latin. No, is, isn't it the yeah, Give Me Your Tired it's, and Sick? It's the Give you me... that, that, that poem? I thought that that Give Me Your Tired and Sick was written inside the Ellis Island um, building. I didn't think that was on the tablet. Right, I'm going to put an end to this. She holds a tablet of law. So Charlotte, you get a point for that, I think. And written on that tablet is the date of American independence, July 4th, 1776, in Roman okay. numerals. So there you go. I don't, I don't think a scroll is too far off from a tablet, but... No, that's true. Maybe that's... I don't know. Seems pretty different to me. <laughs> well... Seems pretty, pretty different. I guess you'll need it. Question two. The Statue of Liberty was, of course, a gift from France. Who was America's first ambassador to France? Um, Je- would would it have been Jefferson? Jefferson? There was one before him. The guy who did everything. Oh, it was Adams. It was Adams. I think... Or no, no, no. It was Ben Franklin. It was Ben Franklin. It was indeed Benjamin Franklin. Technically, his title was Minister Plenipotentiary. He was very popular in France. And when Thomas Jefferson succeeded him, the French foreign minister apparently asked, is it you who replaced Dr. Franklin? To which Jefferson replied, no one can replace him, sir. I'm only his successor. Mm. That's excellent. Do you know, there was once a, a John F. Kennedy once convened a dinner of, I think, Nobel laureates at the White House. And then he said... This is maybe the smartest uh, group that's ever dined in the White House, with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. (laughs) So that's humility for you. While we're on the topic of illustrious successes, I'm going to be off next week, and Charlotte, you'll be in the chair. Indeed. One might even call me the podcast plenipotentiary. One might. (laughs) And should. Before we go, we got an email this week from a listener who asked, why is balance singular in the Checks and Balance podcast? 
Are there many checks, but only one state of balance? Idris, Charlotte, can you try and explain why we dropped the plural for the balances? Because uh, we're fair and balanced, like Fox News. <laughs> yes, exactly. Even yeah. even fairer than Fox. Charlotte? Yeah. <laughs> even fairer than Fox. I think that could be our new tagline. I like it. The Economist believes in free trade and bad puns. And so checks and balance is sort of a pun on checks and balances. And it's meant to convey the idea that we take an independent look at American politics and what's going on in American life. Okay, hopefully that explains that. Please do get in touch with us at podcasts at economist.com if you have any other questions or any comments on the show. Thanks, Charlotte. Thanks, Idris. Thank you. Great. Thank you. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble with research by Erica Shin. Nicola Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. And don't forget our live Q&A discussion on Thursday, October 27th. You can find out more and sign up for that at economist.com slash checks webinar. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance for you next week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.